Welcome to the second in a series of Faith to Action Initiative webinars designed to share principles and strategies in family and community-based care. I'm Sarah Gazarek, coordinator for the initiative. The Faith to Action Initiative serves as a resource for Christian groups, churches, and individuals seeking to respond to the needs of orphans and vulnerable children in Africa and around the world. We believe that children grow best in the love and care of families, and our mission is part of a growing global movement within the Christian church to strengthen family-based care and help children remain in families. The focus of our work is to encourage action inspired by faith and informed by evidence-based best practice. We offer practical tools and resources and up-to-date information on key strategies and research through our website, publications, and webinars. Through this webinar, we will explore the continuum of care, a topic briefly introduced in our first webinar, The Importance of Family, which can be found on the Faith to Action Initiative website at www.faithtoaction.org. The continuum of care provides a way of looking at what happens when children are separated from parental care, some of the options for alternative care, and how to ensure that the best interests of children are met. We'll look at different types of alternative care, including both family-based and residential care settings, and touch on some of the benefits and challenges of different options. While each Faith to Action webinar can be viewed independently, we encourage you to first listen to our initial webinar, which presents introductory material and sets the stage for this discussion. We will hear first from Carrie Olson and then Ellie Oswald. Carrie serves as chair of the Faith to Action Initiative, which she helped to launch in 2006. She is the founder and president emeritus of the Firelight Foundation, a public charity foundation that supports and advocates for the needs and rights of children and families made vulnerable by poverty and HIV AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. Carrie holds a PhD in developmental psychology and education from the University of Michigan. Following her presentation, we will hear from Ellie Oswald. She has served as Director of Mission and Outreach at Bethany Community Church in Seattle, Washington, and served as the Children in Crisis Research and Communications Coordinator for World Vision International's Child Development and Rights Technical Team. The continuum of care is a way of looking at alternative care options when children have been separated from parental care. Just as the circumstances surrounding separation from parents can differ from child to child, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. However, there are some general guidelines and evidence-based practices which we will be drawing on throughout this webinar. When reunification with parents is no longer safe or possible, there are a range of alternative care options depending on a child's particular circumstances. International documents define alternative care as the formal and informal care of children outside of parental care, including kinship care, guardianship, adoption, foster families, supervised independent living, temporary residential care, and placement in small group homes. Large-scale institutions, that is, orphanages housing large numbers of children, are not a recommended option on the continuum. As research shared in our first webinar has demonstrated, Large institutions are unable to provide the individualized care and relationships that are essential to healthy development. High-quality residential care, such as small group homes, are included on the continuum of care. However, ideally and whenever possible, the pathways depicted in the continuum will ultimately lead to some type of safe, loving, and reliable family care. This is because the family is a child's most important source of affection, guidance, protection, and sense of identity. This is true throughout childhood and is especially important to healthy development in the first five years of life. 
First, let's hear from Carrie Olson. Thank you, Sarah, and welcome, everyone. Before we focus on the different types of alternative care, first, let's briefly review some of the reasons that children can become separated from parental care. Parental illness, including mental illness and drug use, the death of one or both parents, abuse, neglect and abandonment, disability, and natural disasters. These are some of the many causes underlying the loss of parental care around the world. Globally, poverty is a primary factor underlying family separation and the placement of children in orphanages. According to the World Bank and UN Development Program, in 2014, close to 2 billion people globally, over 1 billion of these being children, were living on less than the equivalent of 2 U.S. dollars a day. In conditions of extreme poverty, the pull factor of orphanages is that they offer an immediate solution to the problem of lack of food, education, or health care. In the absence of needed support, placing a child in an orphanage may seem to a parent like the only way to meet their child's basic material needs. A key point we hope to highlight today is the importance of preventing separation from parents and from family care. Keeping children in their family of origin whenever safe and possible prevents the trauma of separation and a possible lifetime of disconnection from family. Strengthening the capacity of families to provide and care for children is not only shown to be much more cost-effective than caring for children in institutions, but even more importantly, family care provides a stronger foundation for healthy growth and development and offers better outcomes for children in the long term. Family strengthening, which we will explore in more depth in our next webinar and podcast, includes services and ministries that provide livelihood support to parents, such as training and loans to start up small businesses, mental health and spiritual support, and supporting access to medical services and to education. Along with national and local governments, the local church and community, pastors, church and community members, through their leadership and actions, can play important roles in providing family strengthening services. The global church also has a key role to play in supporting and partnering with these efforts. When separation from parents has occurred or is at risk of occurring, temporary residential care can provide services that evaluate and help address the immediate needs of the child and family. Temporary residential care can vary widely from basic respite care to more targeted therapeutic or rehabilitative services for children and families in crisis. Short-term care can provide physical, psychosocial, and other holistic support, for example, for children with special needs, children living on the streets, or children in emergency contexts, such as conflict zones or natural disasters. In these situations, Temporary residential care can play a key transitional role in assessing and supporting the possibility of reunification with a child's parents, or when this isn't possible, in supporting a child's placement into alternative family care. By serving this gatekeeping function, temporary care can prevent unnecessary long-term placement in an orphanage and help minimize the period of time a child is outside of family care. 
When return to parental care is not an option, alternative family care becomes the next best option on the continuum of care. There are many options to consider, and the most vital thing is to find the option that best suits the needs and situation of the individual child. The most common form of alternative family care around the world is kinship care. The vast majority of children living outside of parental care globally live with their relatives and extended family members. In most countries, kinship care is a long-standing and culturally acceptable mode of care for children. Kinship care can be temporary or permanent. It may be formal, meaning that it is arranged through social services and with judicial authority. But much more often, kinship care is informal in nature, a matter of parents reaching out to relatives and relatives stepping up to care for their loved ones. When we step back and reflect on this, it makes sense. Think about whom you would want your children to live with if you were no longer able to care for them. Most likely, it is your child's grandparents, aunts, or uncles. Care by relatives offers the benefits of a family environment and helps a child maintain his or her culture, language, and most importantly, a sense of belonging, love, and family ties. Most children prefer to live with relatives in kinship care for these very reasons. Unfortunately, too many vulnerable children around the world are placed in orphanages without first determining whether kinship care is even an option. This might be due to the geographical distance from family members, or the lack of extended kin, or the fact that relatives are themselves living in poverty and unable to provide for children without some kind of assistance can also simply be due to a lack of understanding of the benefits of family care and the lack of perceived options. For families at risk of separation, efforts to identify kinship care options ahead of time can help ensure that family ties and care are sustained and protected. For example, a church-related program working in Nairobi's slums with HIV-positive single mothers routinely asked who could care for their children if they became too ill to do so. Of over 200 mothers, because of the stigma associated with AIDS, half denied having any extended family members who could possibly provide care. However, after developing a relationship with these women, in almost every case, the social worker was able to identify an extended family member willing and able to provide care if the mother became too sick to do so. This type of outreach, relationship building, and preparation for kinship care can help prevent children being unnecessarily placed in orphanages. As widespread as kinship care is, it is also one of the least adequately supported forms of alternative care. Sadly and too often, children are placed in orphanages for long periods of time without any effort to determine if they have extended family members who might be willing and able to care for them. When efforts are made, many families providing kinship care, and especially those living in poverty or caring for children with special needs or with special needs themselves, are in need of extra support. Grandparents, aunties, and uncles, for example, may need help accessing livelihoods. Or if they are too elderly to work, they may need cash stipends or material assistance to adequately feed and clothe the children in their care. When kinship care is formalized, usually by local court order or judicial authority, the arrangement should be monitored to prevent further family breakdown and another move for the child.
For some children and young adults, kinship care is an option within the context of a youth-headed household, often referred to as child-headed households. This type of alternative family care can occur when siblings have lost their parents and choose to remain together in a household, usually under the care of an older sister or brother, and preferably with additional support from the local community, church, or nearby relatives. While not ideal, a benefit to this arrangement is that it can enable the retaining of family assets like the family home and land, and more importantly, it provides a way for keeping siblings together who might otherwise be split up among relatives, foster families, or in residential care. Youth-headed households can be particularly vulnerable, and they need support in areas such as education, food, health care, and protection from exploitation and abuse. Older siblings taking responsibility for their younger brothers and sisters are often in need of emotional support and vocational training. World Vision reports that one supportive arrangement is to have a separate structure built next to the home of relatives, who as extended family are able to provide additional protection and supervision. When it's been determined that a child can't live with his or her parents, the very first option that should be considered is kinship care. In situations when family members aren't able to care for children, foster care is another form of alternative family-based care. Foster care is defined as full-time care provided by non-related family. While many people in the United States think of foster care in a particular way, based on perceptions of the formal foster care system here, foster care actually varies widely throughout the world. Many countries have a history of informal fostering, such as when a child is placed in the care of a trusted neighbor, friend, or community member. Informal foster care shares many of the same benefits and risks of, and is sometimes even referred to as, kinship care, and often needs the same kind of family-strengthening support. In some regions, care by a non-relative is much less common or even frowned upon within the local culture. While there are a number of countries around the world where foster care of any kind is rare and governments have yet to introduce the concept, it is also true that in many places, foster care is a growing positive alternative to residential care or long-term placement in an orphanage. In sub-Saharan Africa, for example, in the wake of the HIV and AIDS crisis and millions of orphaned children, Many community and faith-based groups worked to increase support of foster care as a viable form of alternative family care, shifting cultural taboos and working with local government to support the families who would step into this role. Foster parents should be well-screened, educated about caring for children who have experienced trauma, and their family needs assessed. Looking out for the well-being of children in any alternative family care placement requires ongoing follow-up for the purpose of both monitoring and support. For example, children need to be protected from being taken into a home to be used as household labor or abused in any way. Formal foster care is typically authorized and arranged by an administrative or judicial authority which also provides oversight of the family on a regular basis to make sure that the child's needs are being met. Formal foster parents often receive some sort of support and access to services, including, for example, a small stipend, or assistance with food, and assistance with a child's education. Whether through the formal foster care system 
or more informally through the local church and community, it is important to ensure that children and caregivers receive necessary support and access to services. As with kinship care, livelihood assistance, caregiver support groups, and other services can reduce the strain on families and help ensure that children's needs are met. Both informal and formal foster care arrangements can be short-term, long-term, or in some cases permanent. For example, a child who has been removed from a dangerous situation may be placed in foster care while reunification with his or her parents or other more permanent family options are being determined. Foster care can also serve as a pre-adoption placement for either domestic or inter-country, also known as international, adoption. In some cultures and countries where adoption is not currently legally recognized, foster care can serve as a permanent family placement. Foster care, despite some of its challenges, including unprepared families and the lack of social workers to monitor the placements, can provide a family environment for children who would otherwise be in institutional care or on the street. With appropriate support, foster care is an important alternative on the continuum of care. For children who have no possibility of remaining with or returning to their parents or relatives, Adoption can provide a promising and positive path to a permanent family. Research has demonstrated that an adoptive family environment can markedly support improved developmental outcomes for children, especially for those young children transitioning from care within orphanages. Adoption may become an option at the birth family's request, It may become an option when a foster family caring for a child wishes for legal permanency, or for many children, adoption becomes an option to be considered after the child has spent some time in an orphanage. Because of the level of permanency, adoption requires a great deal of transparency and ethical oversight. It is essential that there be more than one level of gatekeeping involved before determining that a child is legally available for adoption. For example, this determination should not be made at the sole discretion of orphanage staff. Social workers external to the orphanage and judicial authorities should also be engaged in the process. This is to ensure that children and their families are not being coerced and that the possibility of reunification with parents or placement with extended family has not been overlooked. Domestic or in-country adoption enables children to remain connected to their cultural ties. However, domestic adoption has not been legally recognized or available as an option in certain parts of the world. It's exciting to see that formal domestic adoption, though often still in nascent stages, is gaining momentum in countries within places like Latin America and Africa, whereas inter-country adoption has decreased in response to more stringent and prohibitive government regulation. It is encouraging that in-country adoption is increasing in a number of countries as governments, child welfare organizations, and church leaders are stepping up their promotion and support of domestic adoption as a viable alternative. Uganda is an excellent example of grassroots and government working together to promote formal processes and to offer low-cost legal services. As a result, greater numbers of children are being formally adopted 
into permanent families within their home country. In situations where domestic adoption is not an option and a child is determined to be legally available, then inter-country adoption can provide a way for a child to have a permanent family. In recent years, failed adoptions and adoption controversy have attracted a fair amount of media attention. It's important to recognize up front the risk associated with any form of alternative care with the goal of ensuring the safety and well-being of all children. In the case of adoption, whether domestic or inter-country, a thorough gatekeeping process as well as appropriate preparation of adoptive parents in concert with the child's individual needs are vital to helping to ensure a positive outcome. For all children, permanency planning is an important part of assessing family care options. UNICEF defines permanency planning as a process to ensure stability, continuity, and a sense of belonging to a family. Permanency planning is critical to prevent the separation of children from their families, to reconnect children in care with their original families, or placement within a permanent family through a relative who obtains custody, guardianship, or adoption. Short-term alternative care options are only used as a step in the process towards permanency. At this point, I'd like to welcome our next speaker, Ellie Oswald. She'll be taking a closer look at the role of gatekeeping as we continue to explore the range of options on the continuum of care. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ellie. Thank you, Carrie, and welcome, everyone. Let's begin by looking at the important role of gatekeeping. Gatekeeping refers to the process of assessing which type of alternative care is best for each individual child's particular situation. For example, a gatekeeping process might assess whether a child can be reunified with his or her parents with the appropriate support. Or it might assess whether there are relatives or community members who are willing and able to provide stable, loving care for that child, ensuring that he or she can remain in a family setting. Gatekeeping should look specifically at the individual situation and needs of every child and then actively seek family-based care alternatives. It's critical to preventing unnecessary long-term placement in residential care. For children who are already in formal residential care, the process of proactively seeking and supporting alternatives can lead to successful transition to care within a family. In many places around the world, and especially Africa, Gatekeeping procedures are underdeveloped or lacking altogether. How gatekeeping is conducted varies wildly, so it remains an area that we need to give more attention and support. Gatekeeping can range from an informal assessment and decision-making process led by community social workers or trained volunteers, all the way to legally mandated procedures carried out more formally by the judicial system. Orphanage staff may lead the process with or without assistance from local authorities, or gatekeeping can be a required function of a government body that's mandated within child welfare or protection. Ideally, the process includes both of these. As with the Rwanda example in our first webinar where child care networks were established at the level of the community to involve both community leaders and social workers in the decision-making process. Also, it's important to note that it's best practice to allow and actively support meaningful and safe child participation. That is, asking, listening to, and taking into account what children themselves have to say as part of the decision-making process. The most important thing about gatekeeping is that it happens 
While residential care is sometimes needed, no child should be placed in an orphanage or remain there for an extended period of time without actively seeking family-based care alternatives. For children who are already outside of parental care, including children who are in orphanages, temporary kinship care, foster care, or living on the street, it's important to first ask and assess whether reunification is possible and appropriate. Reunification is the transitioning of a child back into his or her birth family. The process of reunification is rarely a one-time event. In most cases, it's a process made up of many steps. The key elements of this process include addressing the root causes of the separation of the child from the family, and facilitating access to services that respond to those root causes, then preparing both the child and the family for living together again, and finally providing ongoing monitoring and support after the child's been reunified with the family. Past efforts on reunification have illustrated the necessity of considering the reasons why the child was separated from his or her family in the first place and addressing those before, during, and after reunification. As an example, an organization in Uganda that provides temporary care to abandoned infants uses a number of techniques to trace parents or relatives of abandoned children, including radio announcements, posters in the community, and photos in the local newspapers. When they are successful in finding the immediate family or relatives, they do a thorough assessment. If appropriate, a case plan is then created with the parent or relative that includes social services or economic support, counseling, and a schedule for visits before the final placement to encourage attachment between the infant and the caregiver. Once the child is reunified with the family, the social worker makes follow-up visits for one to three years after to make sure the placement is going well and that the child is safe and well cared for. It's true that reunification is not always possible or appropriate. The important thing about reunification is that it is considered and assessed so that an unnecessary long-term separation from a child's birth family does not occur. For example, if separation has occurred because parents are too poor to provide for that child's basic needs, then it's much more preferable to address the root causes of that material poverty by providing the family with material or livelihood support enabling the child to return to the care of his or her family. If, however, it's determined that reuniting with parents is not an option because of abuse, neglect, violence, or other issues that threaten a child's safety or survival, then the next step is to seek reliable alternative family care, including foster care or adoption. And if this is not possible, quality residential care must be considered. Once again, children's participation in the decisions that impact their lives is very important. For example, some young adults may prefer living in a small group home over being reunified with their family. It's also true that children may not always be able to determine for themselves whether an environment is safe. Sometimes even severely abused children will desire to return to the only parents that they've ever known. The bigger picture of what is in the child's best interest must always be taken into account, while at the same time ensuring that children themselves are included in the decision-making process according to their developmental ability. In keeping with evidence-based guidance, as well as with biblical examples, we've placed a strong emphasis on the importance of family care. Whenever possible, when children are, for whatever reason, separated from parental care, Reunification or other forms of family care should be considered first. 
This is because family is the most important source of love, a sense of connection and belonging and healthy development in a child's life. This doesn't mean that high-quality residential care doesn't have a place in the continuum of care. For some children in some circumstances, formal residential care may be the best available option. Ideally, placement in an orphanage is temporary and transitional, ultimately leading to family care rather than becoming a long-term or permanent solution. But not all orphanages are created equal. It's important to make a distinction between orphanages that are large-scale institutions housing more than 15, even to hundreds of children, and small-scale, more individualized settings of small group homes or family-style residential care homes. In our first webinar, we looked at the long-lasting negative effects that research over the past several decades has documented when children are placed in institutional care settings, especially if placed there at a young age or for a long period of time. For this reason, large-scale institutional care is not regarded as an option that should be considered as appropriate, and it's not included in the continuum of care. Small group homes are made up of fewer children, and usually those children are under the care of one or two consistent caregivers. A small group home may serve between 5 and 14 children of similar age and same gender, may focus on care for a particular special need, or may include a wide range of both boys and girls to model the most family-like environment possible. This type of care is different from foster care in that it takes place outside of the natural domestic environment of the family, and in that sense, it is a more formal type of care environment. Small group homes usually consist of facilities that have been especially designed or designated for the care of groups of children. While still considered residential or orphan care, small group homes are ideally placed within the community, not behind large walls with children attending local schools and participating in the life of the community. Children in small group homes usually retain the local language and culture, and they benefit from the stability of having consistent caregivers instead of caregivers rotating on shifts like they do in institutions. Small group homes or family-style homes are a best practice in residential alternative care. As we touched on earlier, some youth and young adults may prefer living in residential care, particularly small group homes, over living with relatives, foster, or adoptive families. For example, youth who've experienced abuse in family or foster care placements, or perhaps who've lived with their peers on the streets, or those who participated in armed conflict and are uncomfortable within family life, they may choose residential over family care. In these situations, youth live with peers in a group home and are provided with support and guidance from one or more adult supervisors or mentors who may either live on-site or nearby in the local community. Through consistent and frequent connection to community, education, vocational training, or apprenticeships, as well as individual mentorship and guidance, youth can be encouraged and enabled to acquire the necessary skills for independent living. The local church can play a key role in this process through pastoral care, through offering spiritual support and a sense of community, and through opportunities to build long-lasting, caring relationships with adults who have the youth's best interest at heart. For youth who've lived in large-scale orphanages and even smaller group homes, especially for long periods of time, there is a huge challenge in graduating from residential care in a supervised group setting to independent life as an adult in the community. 
Children growing up in families usually maintain their family ties. Even when they leave home, they stay connected. They're still part of the family as a son or a daughter, grandson or granddaughter. But for most children growing up in orphanages, this sense of connection and belonging is not there. And the act of aging out and leaving the care of the orphanage, fending for themselves, can be a very difficult transition. As research has shown, putting youth at a higher risk of depression, suicide, and drug abuse. It's vital for youth living in residential care to be both prepared prior to and supported through and after the transition to independent living. Small group homes specifically focused on providing this transitional care, as well as mentorship and apprenticeship programs, help provide youth stepping stones to productive life in the community. In addition to first and foremost supporting reunification and strengthening of family-based care alternatives, part of the growing movement to deinstitutionalize children is transitioning from large-scale orphanages to smaller group homes. These kinds of shifts require careful planning and expertise to be done well. From the business model and day-to-day operations, to the selection, training, and role of staff, to engagement with both donors and the local community, a shift from running a large-scale institution to supporting family-based care or running a small group home requires expertise to be well-managed. If the appropriate staffing, support services, and community buy-in and engagement are lacking, children and youth can be more likely to end up on the street or back in institutions. Thankfully, because of the growing recognition of the importance of family, rising interest in supporting family-based care, and more family-like residential care settings, there are an increasing number of examples and tools to help guide practice. We encourage you to visit our website, faithtoaction.org, regularly to see what new resources have become available. And if you are engaged in or have gone through a transitional journey for yourself, please contact us and share your stories and challenges with us. Before we close, I wanted to say a few words about the care of children in emergency situations. Every day around the world, children and families experience emergencies that push the boundaries of safe care. From civil unrest in Central Africa to natural disasters in Southeast Asia, children are at a high risk in emergency contexts. While emergency response is not shown in the continuum of care we presented, it cannot and should not be overlooked. All too often in emergency contexts, children are separated from their families. Family tracing and reunification and family-based alternative care are much more effective responses than placement of children in orphanages. It's essential to have a plan in place for children so that when an emergency arises, well-meaning helpers don't rush to the scene to build orphanages and instead provide support to identify family care. Proper gatekeeping should be in place during an emergency, which means proper gatekeeping needs to be placed prior to an emergency. The idea of rescuing children from emergencies by removing them from their communities or their country runs the risk of psychologically harming children and significantly inhibits the possibility of eventual reunification with family. The church can play a role in emergency response by offering temporary shelter and basic necessities and by working through local community leaders to trace families. For children in emergency situations and with no other means of support, High-quality residential care can provide transitional, rehabilitative, or interim special needs care. After the tsunami in Indonesia, 80% of children were reunited with family members within six months after the disaster using family tracing and identification. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. As you continue to explore how you can be involved in the Best Care for Children, we encourage you to visit our website at www.faith2action.org and explore our many helpful resources. On our website, we have free downloadable resources such as the Summary of Research to Help Guide Faith-Based Action. It includes key overall findings while also providing examples within specific countries or regions to further illustrate some of the points made in this webinar. Our aim is to provide a foundation that informs and supports churches, faith-based organizations, and people of faith to anchor their research and programming within existing evidence. You can also subscribe to our listserv on our website, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and read additional resources, stories, and updates of family-based care for orphans and vulnerable children. Always feel free to contact us through our website to share your own stories and experiences related to the continuum of care, or to learn more about how you can engage in strategies for strengthening families. In webinar three, the third for this three-part series, we will explore key strategies for strengthening family care, including expanding the capacity of families to care for their children and livelihood and material support to access health care and education. Examples of these and other strategies to prevent the placement of children in orphanages will be discussed and explored. Additionally, the role of the faith community in supporting these strategies will be highlighted with practical examples from two of our publications, From Faith to Action and Journeys of Faith. May God continue to bless you in your service to children and families. <music>